0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We love the feeling of wonder, which you help us tap into through Colorado Wonders. Take our state's lowest elevation, for example. It's just not celebrated like the highest is. There's not even a marker. That is until we took a trip to Yuma County. When did you learn that your property included the lowest point in Colorado?
1: When you called me. (laughs) Seriously? Seriously.
0: We'll learn about the geology of this place and the people who've called it home. Then, sizing up Colorado's seismicity and an old photo inspires a question about petrified tree stumps.
2: Why were they preserved goes back to a time in Colorado when there was actually a fair amount of volcanic action.
0: Plus, you say wine coop, I say wind coop. Just don't call the whole thing off.
3: This is a time of year when we consider all the things we're grateful for. Here at Colorado Public Radio, we're so grateful for active members, business partners, and volunteers who choose to support CPR. We wouldn't be able to do what we do or be here for you without you. Thanks so much for being a part of the CPR family. All of us at Colorado Public Radio wish you a safe and happy Thanksgiving holiday.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. In this state, the mountains get a lot of our attention. Heck, we're in the mountain time zone. One of our state songs is Rocky Mountain High. So it stands to reason that Mount Elbert at 14,440 feet is well known as Colorado's highest point. But what about its lowest That kicks off our special today, centered around Colorado Wonders, CPR's project that answers questions about this place we call home. Okay, gentlemen, are you ready to hit the road? let's let's go. go. Three of us piled into a car with the GPS coordinates for Colorado's lowest spot, 3,315 feet, on the Colorado-Kansas line. In 1.1 miles, turn right to merge onto I-76 East. My company for the three-hour drive from Denver to Yuma County, Colorado, is geologist Matt Bauer. His business card is a sticker depicting a drill bit.
3: It's used for drilling oil and water wells. So those knobby bits on there actually rotate and chip off little pieces of rock. Bauer is passionate about rocks.
0: He's a vice president of the Rocky Mountain Association of Geologists, teaches at the Colorado School of Mines. And he's gonna tell us the why behind Colorado's lowest point. My other passenger is a singer.
1: Gold.
0: Forrest Kelly of Boulder is a member of the a cappella group Face Vocal Band. His tones are so dulcet, Fisher Price made him the voice of a toy fire truck.
4: Let's climb up high to help. The ladder comes down.
0: I'm not going to tell you precisely why he's on board yet, but Matt and Forrest establish a quick rapport. Forrest mentions that his band has performed at Red Rocks. Matt's naturally fascinated by the amphitheater's geology. But the concert venue is now many, many miles behind us. We are approaching where Colorado, Nebraska, and Kansas meet. Matt, have you ever been to this particular part of, I guess it's the Three Corners here? I have not. Forrest, have you ever been to this part of the country? I have not. It's actually quite beautiful out here. Colorado's lowest elevation is on private land, and we are meeting one of the owners, Sally Linen, who's told us to look out for her old blue pickup. And there she is. Hi, Sally! Hi. It's nice to meet you. She's parked on a dirt road, her windows rolled down. I pull over for a quick chat. Will you tell us where we're headed?
1: You're headed to the lowest altitude in Colorado, on the Rickery River.
0: And this is your land? Yes. Ranch land? What is it? Yes, yes, it's pasture land. Pasture land. And do do you pasture cows on it?
1: Uh, Normally, yes. It's been so dry this year, we don't have anything there. We have met just south of Hagler, Nebraska...
0: And uh, tell us about the route that we'll take.
1: Well, we'll go into Kansas and then back into Colorado and out through a wheat field and down on the riverbed.
0: (laughs) We hop back in our cars and she leads the way down a few more dirt roads, then onto a two-track in the brush. We park and walk the rest of the way.
1: This fence post is our state line marker.
0: So we're right on the border now of Kansas and Colorado. Right. And that means we are how far away from the lowest point?
1: It's right down there in those trees.
0: Ah, where the greenery is. You can yeah. tell that's the Arikaree yeah. River.
1: That's the Arikaree River, the dry Arikaree River. <laughs> it hasn't had any water in it for 10 years anyway.
0: Do you remember that 10 years ago when you oh. saw water?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. When I was a kid, it was, it was a wide river used to play in there but but no now, now I'll, if there's a flash flood you might see some but we haven't seen that for a long time either.
0: how long has this land been in your family Sally?
1: this piece just since 87 just 87 yeah yeah <laughs> but my my granddad homesteaded just over the hill here in 1906
0: when did you learn that your property included the lowest point in Colorado did you know that all the time
1: no. When you called me a month ago.
0: <laughs> Seriously? Seriously. Yeah, we looked at the exact it. coordinates, and it's your land. So uh, we've learned this together.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: Singer Forrest Kelly walks with us. So does geologist Matt Bauer. Well, there's a coyote skull. Oh, yeah, desiccated and deteriorating. We see a turtle, too, alive, then reach the river. Because it's dry, we can stand in the riverbed. The U.S. Geological Survey indeed recognizes this place as Colorado's lowest. But Matt looks for the lowest of the low and spots a hole where water might
3: have eddied, if there were any. Whenever you have a stream, you can have other channels as the river meanders back and forth. So I wanted to make sure that there wasn't another channel that was deeper over on the other side. And then we went from the state line in To find this wash here. It looks like water had swirled around. And even though we're not exactly on the state line, we're a little bit farther into Colorado, this spot is definitely lower. And we
0: know the lowest spot in Colorado is at the state line on the Erickery. That's right. Again, the line with Kansas in this case. Sally has come prepared. You get the sense she always does. She has brought something to mark the spot with and hammers it into the ground.
1: This is just a T-post that we're going to put in at the lowest point.
0: And I think it's exciting that you'll do the honors. Watching all this unfold is Boulder singer Forrest Kelly. As for why he's here, Forrest is a bass, and we asked him to sing his lowest note in the lowest spot. Are we doing this? I, I, well, it's not we. You, you're going to do this. But yeah, it's, it's time. It's go time. All right, I'm doing this. All right, here
4: we go. But the Colorado Rocky Mountain High I've seen it rain and fire in the sky The shadows from the starlight Is softer than a lullaby Rocky Mountain High Colorado Rocky Mountain High, Colorado. It's pretty low, anyway. (laughs) How low was the O in Colorado? I think that was maybe a, I think it was like a B, maybe. Not the super lowest note, but pretty low. I could probably sing a lower note if you want to just grab the lowest note. Sure.
0: All right, let's see. Na, 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 na. Probably that one. The lowest note at the lowest spot in Colorado, and what do we think that note was? Ooh, I bet that's probably an A, a low A. (laughs) Rocky Mountain High, I love the irony, by the way, of that, good job. Also, the state's second state song. That's right, it's a beautiful song, John Denver. Have you sung that before? I never have, I
4: mean, you know, just in the car or whatever, but not not professionally. (laughs)
0: Right after a break, the geologic and human history of Colorado's lowest spot. How was this place formed, and who has called it home? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
2: front range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks
5: for the best sound?
2: These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom and we want to hear from you too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders.
0: Let's return to Yuma County, Colorado, at the Kansas border, where the Erickery River crosses, is the state's lowest elevation at 3,315 feet. Until we tracked down landowner Sally Linen and asked if she'd give us access, she had no idea just how special her property is. But she has just hammered a marker into the ground, where I then stood with geologist Matt Bauer of Golden. Matt, you
3: are holding a giant... What is that magenta book? Yeah, it's the Geologic Atlas of the Rocky Mountain region. This was published by the Rocky Mountain Association of Geologists. I mean, this looks like the kind of book that you might find on a special table in a library. If you can find one. They're all out of print and they're kind of hard to come by. What are you opening to now, delicately, on these pages? So we're actually going to look at some tectonic units. These are actually occurring down in the crystalline basement. So these are below the sedimentary rocks that we're standing on top of. And even though these are low, undulating hills here, there's actually a lot more going on in the basement. Underneath us. Underneath us. Yep. I guess the primary question
0: is, what makes this the lowest spot in Colorado? Does it have to do with the fact
3: that we're standing in the Arikaree Riverbed? That's part of it, but there's a lot more to it. So the Colorado Plateau, which we can actually see, which is west of us, past the Front Range, It actually keeps the rest of Colorado quite high, and we are situated on the eastern flank of what's called the denver julesburg Basin. And the Hartville Uplift, which is up in Wyoming, and then the Los Animos Arch, which is down to our south, they kind of squeeze that basin on either side and produce this lowest point. And then the river has eroded that alluvium at the top and made a, a nice low spot for us to be in today. This is not an easy book
0: to navigate. So you're actually going to put it on the ground, on the riverbed.
3: Yes. So let's flip back over here and take a look at the Ogallala. So we can actually see where the Rockies are here, where you have erosion going on, and then that sediment being brought out towards the eastern plains.
0: Oh, fascinating. So when we think of the plains and the mountains as being somehow separate, they're actually quite linked.
3: Very much so. It's just... Mountains have been uplifted and eroded, and then that sediment being carried off into where you have more accommodation space. Now, you mentioned Ogallala, and
0: that makes me think of the aquifers. So
3: deep down below, is there water? Uh, There is. There's water in between those different pieces of sedimentary rock in the pore space. Um, And that's really important here for people that farm in dry land.
0: Now, you have looked up some of the other low points in other states, Mm -hmm. Uh, To help us understand just how low or not we are, put this low
3: spot in Colorado into some perspective. Well, it's actually the highest low spot in all the 50 states. Also, our lowest point is higher than the highest point in 18 states and the District of Columbia.
0: So in Colorado, to go low is quite a relative experience. It always is in Colorado, What are some of the standout facts you learned yourself about
3: this spot, but also the area around it? You know, it was kind of interesting, the linking between geology and the human history here. The Hartville Uplift, one of the reasons why this is the lowest point, it actually has the oldest red ochre mine in North America. Red ochre? Red ochre. So the Paleo-Americans were actually mining red ochre, which is a type of hematite. For die there. So it brought human activity into this area. Geologist Matt Bauer of Golden. Now,
0: I'd intended to have one more expert along for the ride, but he wasn't able to make the trip. So I crossed my fingers for cell service and gave him a call from the lowest spot in Colorado. Sam, you there?
5: Yeah, I'm here, Ryan. Hello.
0: Hi, everyone. This is Sam hey. Bach. He's the public historian at History Colorado. I guess maybe we could start with Arikari.
5: Arikari is a reference to the Arikara people who call themselves the Sanish. Uh, That is the name for themselves. But Arikari uh, is a name they went by in the 19th century. And now today, they are one of the three affiliated tribes, which are also known as the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara nation.
0: And where are they based today?
5: They are based in central North Dakota today.
0: Okay, I suspect that had something to do with white people moving them. What do you think?
5: That's exactly correct, yes. They were moved out of their traditional homeland into a more convenient place for the American government.
0: I know that you did some research for us about this spot. Uh, What did you turn up that stood out to you?
5: What really stood out to me was that The lowest point in Colorado is actually also the site of some of the lowest moments in our history. And what I'm talking about is wars between the Plains tribes and the U.S. government that happened following the Sand Creek Massacre of 1864. This
0: is after the Sand Creek Massacre.
5: That's correct. Yeah, the Sand Creek Massacre really was this moment of ultimate betrayal when all of the Plains tribes that had been negotiating with the United States government, you know, as sovereign nations through this treaty process, really saw that the government wasn't negotiating in good faith and that they had no intention of keeping up their side of the bargain and would use force, if necessary, to remove those people from their homelands.
0: I think of the Sand Creek Massacre as in and of itself so singularly horrific, but the idea that it ushered in really a new era of non-cooperation is important information, Sam. I wonder if that's something that you think more people ought to know.
5: I really do. And I think I think the people of the plains really don't have a lot of opportunities to reflect on, you know, the violence that preceded their ancestors or themselves settling on the plains. And the reason is that the people who lived there before them had been violently removed to reservations far away.
0: Now, earlier, Matt, our geologist, mentioned paleo-Indians. And the, the reasons that they first came to this area, uh, part of it was to mine for what would become dye, what would become, you know, color. Um, can you connect like the paleo Indians to the tribes that we know were removed?
5: Yeah. You know, I think the Paleo-Indian label sometimes um, is useful, and sometimes, you know, it can make us think that these were separate peoples. But, you know, really, a lot of these tribes don't have stories that disconnect themselves from that far back. You know, their traditions stretch to those very people's and to those places where they gathered, you know, these ceremonial dyes and times, or even just, you know, things that enriched the color of their lives. Um, You know, they went there for generations to obtain these dyes. So, you know, I think that's the connection is, you know, in these people's minds, these stories go back hundreds of generations. Their DNA is from these lands.
0: And then we think about more contemporary settlers, for instance, of the homesteaders, Who carved out uh, what was a hard Scrabble life for themselves? That's like Sally's family. Is this the site, for instance, of the Dust Bowl? Are we standing in Dust Bowl territory?
5: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the most dramatic, consequential environmental disasters of the 20th century, and this is, you know, you're right in the heart of it. The stories that come from that time, you know, the desperate choices that these people had to make, they just are really mind-boggling. And, you know, at History Colorado Center, we have a whole exhibit about uh, what that was like for settlers at the time.
0: I'll never forget the gentleman who told me that the dust storms were so intense, the chickens thought it was night and went in to roost. That detail will never exactly leave my mind, or cows' stomachs being filled with dirt, with sand from blowing around during the Dust Bowl. Sam, why do you think the mountains get so much darn attention? And these plains with layers of history and beauty, uh, you know, they're less of the Colorado destination that you might see in the tourist ads.
5: Yeah, well, I think the first thing is that the beauty of the mountains is more obvious than the beauty of the plains. You know, it's harder to appreciate the landscape uh, when the dominant color is brown between, you know, late July and early June, um, or I guess May. So, you know, there's that. But I also think that for a long time in American history, people understood the center of our continent as a desert, this vast, uh, you know, landscape between the Rocky Mountains and really the Mississippi River was understood to be uninhabitable. And, you know, that attitude kind of persisted, um, and it even persists today. You know, you hear a lot about Colorado being a flyover state, (laughs) Um, and I think, you know, people who say that really haven't spent a lot of time on the planes and don't understand how gorgeous it can be.
0: Well, Sam, thanks for connecting with us.
5: Thank you so much, Ryan. It was my pleasure to speak with you and my misfortune to not be there.
0: Well, you are here in spirit, and uh, I'm gonna declare that you've been to the lowest spot in Colorado. I don't care what they say.
5: Thank you, I'll take it.
0: History Colorado Sambach on a phone call I made from the lowest spot in Colorado, 3,315 feet on the Arikari River, at the Kansas border in Yuma County. Sam will actually be back later in the show. My thanks as well to geologist Matt Bauer of Golden, bass singer Forrest Kelly of Face Vocal Band in Boulder, and landowner Sally Linen. You can see photos from our road trip, a map, and video of Forrest singing at CPR.org. Colorado Matters and Colorado Wonders continue in the next half hour with a story of seismic importance. I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News and KRCC.
2: She thinks her ability to Google is going to figure out some big global conspiracy. So many issues have wedged
4: families apart the last few years. Personal, political, a global pandemic.
1: I haven't wanted to ask if you were going to get vaccinated because I couldn't live with the terror that brings in me.
4: How one mother and daughter unwedged the issues that divided them. Colorado Public Radio presents The Wedge, everywhere you
1: get your podcasts.
0: This is a special Colorado Wonders edition of Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. To live in Colorado is to have a front row seat to natural disasters avalanches, wildfires, tornadoes, floods, hailstorms. But there's one phenomenon Coloradans are left to wonder about earthquakes.
5: Where are the fault lines in Colorado, and where can we expect seismic activity, if any?
0: That is Louise Watson, who lives in Bailey. Her question led us to Golden, home of the National Earthquake Information Center, where I met up with seismologist William Yeck.
6: We're on the School of Mines campus, part of the Geologic Hazard Science Center, uh, which is a USGS center. And in here we have people who study earthquakes, landslides, geomagnetism. But the NEIC, the National Earthquake Information Center, is where we study seismicity globally and monitor it. And then as soon as we can report an earthquake, we report its size and its location.
0: So if there were an earthquake somewhere on Earth as we were standing here today, it would be monitored here and then kind of assessed?
6: Yeah, that's exactly right. So we have seismic stations recording globally from a variety of different seismic networks, and we ingest that data. And if it's a significant earthquake, so magnitude 5 and larger, we'll report on it within 20 minutes anywhere in the globe.
0: Report to whom?
6: to the public, as well as any interested parties who use that information uh, to try to understand the impact of the earthquake and how to respond to it. So while
0: you're busy here talking with me, is there someone monitoring a screen in this building in real time?
6: Right, so we have systems that continually, automatically look for earthquakes, and then uh, then we have a team of humans. We have human analysts who work really hard 24-7 on three shifts. Who will actually look at that information once our automatic systems uh, create an event, and then actually publish it to the web with more detailed characterization?
0: Walking around this place, I am just seeing map after map after map. You know, of, of <laughs> events that are pretty disturbing in people's lives, but are a part of your daily career and science.
6: Bay Area earthquakes over there. What else? Yeah, so, I mean, not only are we monitoring earthquakes in real time, but we're also creating a catalog of earthquakes, right? So this is a hazard map of the U.S. So what we do is we take all the earthquakes we record, as well as faults that we know about, and we estimate the hazard of seismicity in different locations. So this is a map of the frequency of damaging earthquakes around the U.S., and you'll see, you know, for a lot of the U.S., uh, these lighter colors show that there aren't a lot of earthquakes, but then areas where we have these more red colors Uh, such as California or Alaska, Uh, that's where there's higher seismic hazard and that's where we see more earthquakes.
0: Well, and this is fundamental to why we are talking to you today, which is to ask you about seismicity and faults in Colorado. Indeed, California is different shades of intense red. Colorado only seems to get into light orange, otherwise it's yellow, green and blue. Some white, meaning almost no seismicity on the plains. In
6: general, are we a shaken place? So we don't have seismicity like you see in some areas. Uh, where we really see high seismic hazard is where we have plate boundaries. So, for example, California, most people have heard about the San Andreas Fault. That marks the plate boundary between the Pacific plate and the North American plate. And it really creates a high seismic hazard. There's a lot of seismicity there. In Colorado, we don't have any tectonic plate boundaries like that. So we don't see that discrete lineation of seismicity that you would see in other regions.
0: Now, are all faults related to plates?
6: No, they aren't. So we have faults all throughout Colorado. It's just most of them are really small faults. And that's true anywhere in the U.S. There's faults everywhere. Just in most cases, the slip rates are very, very small. And those faults might be very, very small. So you don't see these significant earthquakes. When we have earthquakes away from a plate boundary like that, we refer to them as interplate earthquakes. So in Colorado, we do have those interplate earthquakes, um, but they're really, when we look at seismicity and we record it, we see it's dispersed throughout the state. It's dispersed. And
0: what would trigger a Colorado earthquake? And let's talk about natural
6: causes first. We'll get into the idea that people can trigger earthquakes a bit later. Right. So even though we're away from these tectonic plate boundaries, we are still having a stressed crust. So that comes from these plate boundaries. That stress is transmitted into the far away from the plate boundaries, as well as there can be local changes that change the stress within the subsurface. And anytime there's stress placed on a fault, it has the potential to slip. So a fault is just a plane in the earth. And when it slips, we feel an earthquake. What is the biggest recorded earthquake in Colorado history? Uh, So historically, the largest earthquake that we have evidence for was in 1882. It was a magnitude 6.6. But that was before we could actually record seismicity on seismographs and actually really accurately detect the location and the size of the earthquake. So for that earthquake, we had to rely on felt reports or what people describe in the shaking to try to estimate where it occurred.
0: Felt reports, that is what people felt.
6: Yeah, exactly. And large reliance on news for that, so what newspapers said about the event. And from the intensity of shaking, we can tell that it occurred somewhere in north-central Colorado, and we can also tell that it was around a magnitude six and a half, but it's really, you know, imprecise compared to what we can do today. What
0: about in more
6: recent years or days? Yeah, so in the past few decades, the largest earthquake has been a magnitude 5.3 that occurred in 2011, that was southwest of Trinidad, So that was an earthquake where we actually think that it was related to human activity. There's natural seismicity that occurs in that region, but there was also wastewater injection going on, and that event may have been triggered by human activity.
0: Okay, so this is near the New Mexico border in southern Colorado, not far from, I guess, Raton Pass. And it is a segue to the fact that people can trigger earthquakes.
6: Colorado actually has one of the richest histories of human-caused earthquakes by wastewater injection. So some people might remember uh, in the 1960s, there's a sequence of earthquakes that occurred in the Denver area, and that was caused by injection at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. And that was really the first case where we saw wastewater injection causing earthquakes.
0: Wastewater injection, meaning what?
6: Well, it's any water that we people want to get rid of, and they just inject it deep underground to get rid of it. So in modern times, that's mostly related to oil and gas, and it's usually a byproduct of oil and gas extraction.
0: And... I know that, as well, there was some underground nuclear testing near Rulison, in Colorado uh, that had some seismicity, I think.
6: Right. So a lot of seismicity, or really seismology as a field, a lot of the development came from monitoring nuclear blasts, because when there is a nuclear explosion or any explosion, it creates seismic waves, and we can record those and estimate the size of an earthquake.
0: So are we smart enough to know how to prevent them when injecting wastewater, or is that a bit of a crapshoot still?
6: It's a really challenging problem because we know that there's faults in the subsurface, but often we don't know exactly where they are. So Oklahoma is a good example where we saw a lot of earthquakes induced by fluid injection, and we found that we don't really know where all the faults are. There's lots of small faults in the subsurface that just aren't imaged or weren't seismically active prior, so we just don't know they exist.
0: So that is the key here, that if you are injecting where there are faults, that's sort of the magic recipe.
6: Right, exactly. I mean, by definition, an earthquake is occurring on a fault. Uh, so it's just the size of the fault that really controls how large that earthquake could be. Have you been in an earthquake, William? I have never felt an earthquake, ever. It's, it's an embarrassment <laughs> being a seismologist, but I would love to feel one sometime. Unfortunately, Colorado is probably not the best place to get the chance to feel an earthquake.
0: Which leads naturally to the question of why a national earthquake center is in Colorado. Maybe the best place to have an earthquake center is far from a lot of seismic activities.
6: I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a long history for why the earthquake information center, the National Earthquake Information Center is in Colorado. But you're certainly right that being away from significant seismic hazard is an important part of having an operation that can continue running in the event of an earthquake. Thank you so much for
0: answering these questions for us.
6: Yeah, I'd happy to do it.
0: Seismologist William Yeck answering a Colorado Wonders question about earthquakes in our state. Now to another question asker. Karen Mihalik is a fourth-generation Coloradan and has the photos to prove it. She lives in Elizabeth, east of Castle Rock. And she asks about a town that until recently she knew only through family photos.
5: Oh, I've seen a couple of interesting photographs from back in the early 1900s. my family handed down about this place called Florissant, and I've never been there, and I just am very curious on what is there and
0: what it's all about. Mahalik says one of those photos, from 1900, shows her great-uncle with friends gathered around a giant tree stump. It's part of the nearby National Monument, the Florissant Fossil Beds. That's where CPR's Dan Boyce met up with Jeff Woolen, lead interpretive ranger.
2: There are these two very large green metal roofed shelters and they're covering up some of the biggest petrified tree stumps in the world. So we're looking at a petrified stump that's about 10 or 12 feet wide, about 10 feet tall, and it weighs about 100,000 pounds.
4: I gotta be honest, I have never been to the monument until today. Yeah. I absolutely did not expect to see a tree stump that is this big, this thing is absolutely enormous. You feel like you could carve a hole and live inside the thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, it looks like, I mean, you could fit like a car could fit inside. And maybe some of the listeners have been to the redwoods in California and have seen these giant trees. Um, But it is surprising, redwoods in Colorado, right? Those are supposed to be in California and Oregon. And the answer turns out to be is that if you were to look at redwood fossils around the world, it turns out that redwood trees normally lived all around the northern hemisphere, used to be tens of millions of years ago. That was normal. And so it looks like here, at this time, the mean annual temperature was similar to modern day San Francisco. So it wasn't like crazy warm, but it was warmer. And it supported all these different kinds of things that today would live in other parts of the world. And then there was a massive climate change at the end of this time period. and worked its way into what we now have as a cool temperate climate.
4: When I look at just the absolute massive size of uh-huh. these stumps, and I imagine these giant trees growing hundreds of feet in the air, right. during the time, how thick would a forest like this be? How close
2: together were trees of this size? Certainly it was a diverse forest, so it wasn't it wasn't like only a stand of redwoods. There were all kinds of other trees, even just at this exhibit right in front of us is showing a maple leaf um, and there were elms and other kinds of trees. So it was a mixture. It was a mixed hardwood, warm temperate forest. And then it got hit by a volcano. So, well, indirectly. So we're going to go walk over here and I'll tell you about that.
4: Yeah. Why don't we have these things all over the state? Why do we only
2: see them here? So again, going back to that Redwoods normally lived around the northern hemisphere, so that's part of the reason. But then why were they preserved goes back to a time in Colorado when there was actually a fair amount of volcanic action. And about 18 miles to the southwest of us, there was an area we call the Guffey Volcanic Complex. So some listeners might be familiar with there's a little community called Guffey out there. And if you're out in Guffey and you look around, you'll see some mountains and some of those are the eroded guts of the volcano, but you can't go to Guffey today and see the volcano, it's since eroded. So it was there, it was an active volcano, what we call a stratovolcano, so very steep-sided, and it erupted with a lot of ash, and the ash probably covered the sides of the mountain, really thick layers of ash, and then there was a massive rain event, and it saturated the ash, it turned into mud, and then it rolled down, because it was on the top of a mountain, so it came from 15 miles away or 18 miles away. And it, when it got here, it was still 15 feet thick. And they call these kinds of events a lahar. And so they, when you, sorry, yeah. when you say a massive rain event, right. how massive are we talking here? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. But it's, it, so it could have been a massive storm or it might have just been rain that happened for like four days in a row or something like that. Maybe yeah. not
4: necessarily so much the intensity of the rain but following the
2: intensity of the explosion yeah and it was just the amount of the ash and you had a certain amount of rain and it saturated it turned into a, a mud flow came from 15 miles away and it buried these trees up to about 15 feet in mud and they died in place while they were still standing many of them and so then the top parts of them decayed but the bottom part was still under the ground And over time, water that was moving through the surrounding ground picked up minerals, mostly silica, and it seeped into the tree within the cells and even in between the cells, and it turned it into a solid rock.
4: The reason of the height behind the stumps, if I'm hearing you correctly then, is because, very simply, that's how deep they were buried in the mud from this mudslide.
2: That's exactly right. So people will come here and say, did it you know, get knocked off, did something chop it down, what ha you know, but but like you said, it was it was because that's everything that got buried in the mud had a chance to become preserved. Anything that was outside of the mud was exposed to the elements and decayed.
4: Decayed like any right. tree would normally. Yeah. Many of us when we think about Colorado today, we don't think about it as being this incredibly volcanically volatile place today.
2: Right. This was thirty four million years ago when the volcanic eruption in Guffey took place. Within 5 or 10 million years of that time, there would have also been an eruption which is now part of the San Juan Mountains. Um, And it was actually one of the largest eruptions in the world by the the amount of stuff that came out of it that they've calculated out. So yeah, uh, it is surprising.
4: It is because of that volcanic activity of that time that we have the amount and diversity of fossils that we see here today at the fossil beds.
2: Oh absolutely, yeah, and actually the chance of something becoming a fossil is pretty rare. It takes just the right series of events to happen and the right kinds of scenarios. In this case, it was the volcano was the right thing. You had a volcano, it wasn't so close that it blew everything away when it erupted, and it wasn't so far away that it didn't reach it. It was just far away enough that the mud flow came and, you know, buried the trees And another debris flow came from it and blocked a stream that backed up and made that lake. And so then you had a big giant lake here, and then things were falling in the lake, you know, leaves and sticks and insects, and there were things in the lake, like fish that died and went to the bottom. And then the volcano was erupting again over, you know, thousands of years, and more ash was coming in. It was just the right recipe to make fossils.
0: That's Ranger Jeff Woolen with CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce talking about a giant petrified tree stump near the town of Florissant. It is one of many mysteries we've answered with your help through Colorado Wonders. One more when we come back, a question about a famous street and brewery. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
7: The impact of a mass shooting is greater than the number of casualties or visible wounds. Come to CPR.org for resources to help victims of the Club Q shooting and to assist anyone impacted by this weekend's mass shooting in Colorado Springs. How to talk to children about it, how to cope with gun violence and grief, places to go to talk, and ways to donate blood and support for victims and their families. That's all at CPR.org, along with continuing coverage of this developing story.
0: Think of it as a potato-potato debate, exclusive to Colorado. Vicky Bamford of Denver wants to know how to pronounce a street name, and she's so unsure of how it's pronounced, she spelled it out.
1: W-Y-N-K-O-O-P, <laughs> street.
0: This is a street that wends its way through Denver's lower downtown and Rhino neighborhoods. It's also a fairly famous brewery in the area.
1: I've heard it pronounced both Wine Coop and Wincoop. Coop. I volunteered down on that street and wanted to know how to tell folks how to get there and be correct in my pronunciation.
0: Vicki reached out through Colorado Wonders, where you come to us with something that stumps you about our state, and we find the answer. This time, it made sense to head down to the street in question. Hello, sir. Hey there. Do you mind pronouncing the name of this street? I'm just point, going to point to the sign there. Uh, I'm going to say wine, Coop. You're going with wine, not win. Yeah, yeah, wine, yeah. Why? Because <laughs> uh, there's a Y, I guess. W Y N K. I get that. Yeah. Okay. That's Zach Van Neville. He was walking by Denver Union Station and was kind enough to stop. Another passerby, Jorge Gonzalez, also took a stab. Wincoop. You're going with win.
2: I am. Why? Uh, I actually had a friend um, whose last name was uh, was W Y N N E, and he pronounced it win. And so I guess that's why. Yeah.
0: One vote for win, one vote for wine. Well, this is as clear as mud. Then I heard it piercing through the sounds of traffic and downtown construction, the recording that plays at the crosswalk. Winecoop.
5: Walk sign is on to cross Wine Coop Street.
0: Well, that seems pretty official, right? But I can't ask follow-up questions of a recording, so I opted for a human being, a historian who's helped us out before on Colorado Wonders, and that's Sam Bach of History, Colorado. It was windy as heck outside, so we grabbed a table inside Union Station. Well, Sam, which is it? Wincoop or Wincoop? It depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about
7: the street, it's named after the man, Edward Wansheer Winecoop. But if you're talking about the brewery, it's Wincoop, because the founders of the brewery didn't want to talk about wine. they served beer.
0: Got that? Vicki, the street is wine. The brewery is win. But we weren't just interested in pronunciation. We wanted to know about the man behind the street name. Turns out it's a fascinating story of a mineral, a massacre, and of a mind changed.
7: Ned Winekoop, as he was known to his friends, was... Widely known as one of the founders of Denver. He and William Larimer were appointed by the governor of the Kansas territory to come to Arapahoe County and found a town here and establish some government in a place that had zero Euro-American folks living in it until gold was discovered in Ralston Creek nearby.
0: We should just note that before Colorado existed as a state and before that as a territory, we were essentially part of larger Kansas.
7: That's correct, yeah. And it was part of land that had been promised by treaty to the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. And so when Winecoop and his band of founders arrived here, not only did they find the town of Auraria and another town called St. Charles that had not been established but had been claimed, they also found a camp of Arapaho folks who had wintered here for generations. The Arapaho folks would call themselves the original land keepers of this area.
0: Auraria... I connect that, of course, to the Auraria campus now. St. Charles, that's the first I'm hearing of that.
7: Yeah, essentially it was nothing. It was a group of miners who had come to this side of Cherry Creek and who had established a claim on this area and left behind a man named William McGaw to sort of hold down the fort. But as the story goes, McGaw, through some persuasion and maybe a little whiskey, was persuaded to join the Winecoop Larimer Band and establish the townside of Denver. And in fact, that's why Denver got the name Denver. It was the name of the governor of the Kansas Territory, and they were hoping that he would side with the Denver founders rather than the St. Charles founders in assigning a
0: city charter. We could be sitting in St. Charles today, were it not for Ned Weinkoop and his posse. That's exactly right. Do we know much about what kind of a guy Weinkoop was? Yeah, Winecoop was a really interesting man. He was
7: definitely a man of his times. Uh, He was born in Pennsylvania, and he came west to join his brother-in-law and sister uh, who moved to Kansas in the 1850s. And, of course, Kansas in the 1850s is in the middle of a major conflict over whether it would be a free territory or a slave territory. And in fact, running battles in the streets in Kansas were pretty commonplace to the point where Ned Weinkoop walked around with a revolver and a bowie knife and was really skilled at using both of them. And so that's one of the reasons that Governor Denver appointed Weinkoep to be the Arapahoe County Sheriff. It was, he was a great shot. And so, Weinkoop was really involved in a lot of frontier brawls and bar fights and duels um, in his role as Arapaho County Sheriff. So for two years, he attempted to sort of hold the line and establish some sort of law and order in a town where, you know, there really was just a lawless
0: atmosphere. You know, I don't think the term applied at the time, but this notion of whether it should be free or not is kind of a litmus test. Do we know where he stood on that?
7: Weinkoop really refused to take a position on the issue of slavery. Uh, He had friends who were Democrats and pro-slavery. He had friends who were Quakers and anti-slavery. So when he came out to Denver, uh, to establish Denver, he still hadn't really taken a position on slavery. But as the Civil War approached and as he saw sort of more and more of how much the sectional crisis was taking from Kansas, uh, you know, he really made a moral choice to side against slavery. He was anti-slavery uh, by the time the Civil War started, and in fact, he joined the Union Army, uh, the Colorado volunteers that were raised at the outset of the Civil War.
0: Now, the amateur historian in me is naturally beginning to think of the Sand Creek Massacre in about this timeline. Does Winekoop play some sort of role in that?
7: Yeah, it's really impossible to talk about Ned Winecoop without talking about the Sand Creek massacre and in fact he was really one of the the army officers who were responsible for shedding light on the massacre and countering you know, Colonel Shivington, who committed the massacre, you know, was in charge of the massacre, um, he was countering Shivington's narrative of this was a glorious battle uh, for years. And in fact, up until his death, he was fighting with Shivington in the press about this. So, Weinkoop joined the Colorado Volunteers in 1861 when the war broke out. And he was given a lieutenant's rank and fought in the Battle of Glorieta Pass in New Mexico against Confederate forces. He distinguished himself there and was promoted to be major of the company and put in command of Fort Lyon. Over the course of the early part of the war, he led campaigns against the Utes, tasked really with defending American settlers and their outlying outposts near the fort. And he held some really anti-Indian attitudes at the time that were, that were very common and in fact being manufactured and pushed um, from the very folks that he helped found the town of Denver. Attitudes like what? oh, that these people are savages, that they are uncivilized, that they don't deserve to live on this land because they don't farm it. Um, It's an extremely racist and paternalistic way of understanding the Native people who lived here. And it was very callous, you know. I think it's one of these moments in American history where people allow themselves to be wrapped up in fear and prejudice because of that fear.
0: You know, as you unfurl this story for us, Sam, I think, oh, well, good for him, he was trying to bring awareness to a massacre and he thought of it as such as opposed to a victorious battle and yet he had his own problematic relationship with indigenous people. Absolutely, and I think the thing to understand
7: about Weinkoop that's really important is that his experience in attempting to create a peace agreement between his forces and the Cheyenne people really changed his mind about Native peoples, and the Cheyenne in particular.
0: All right, that is an exploration of Ned Winekoop, the man. A street is named after him in Denver, and then another guy comes along with an equally unusual last name, Hickenlooper.
6: So when we opened the brew pub, which was the first brew pub in the the Rocky Mountains in 1988, uh, we decided to name the bar after the street on which it was located. And the man after whom that street is named was Edward Wansheer Wine Coop. But we didn't make wine, we made beer. So we wrote a formal petition to the mayor of Denver, Mayor Pena, and tried to get the name of the street changed to Beer Coop, and he, ref- he refused. Therefore, we call it the Wincoop Brewing Company on Winecoop Street. The voice
0: of now Senator John Hickenlooper speaking with nine news about the brewery he opened ages ago in Denver's Lodo neighborhood. And how it kind of adds to the confusion adds to the tension between Wincoop as the man pronounced his name, and Wincoop, the name of the trailblazing brewery. you know, I suppose to some extent, I think of this as in opposition to the history, but Hickenlooper was making his own history too, I suppose Sam.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know it's natural to want to name your brewery for the place, and especially you know here in Colorado where The place is so central to the identity of the beer and the brewer, Um, and so invoking the name of the street that you're on makes sense. But, you know, I don't know about changing the name to Beer Coop. I think that might be just one step too far, and I think the mayor agreed with me at the time.
0: Thanks for talking with us.
7: It's my pleasure, Ryan. Thank you very much.
0: Public historian Sam Bach of History Colorado answering a Colorado Wonders question about pronunciation. The street in Denver is Wine coupe. The brewery is Wincoop. By the way, History Colorado has been working with three tribes on a Sand Creek Massacre exhibit, which is now open. So what are you curious about? Let us know and we may fetch the answer. Go to CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.